production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Eddie Stern is one of the world's greatest living yoga teachers. His approach to yoga combines traditional practices with scientific research. He has been practicing yoga since 1987 and ran his school in Soho, New York. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, the school became a focal point for Ashtanga yoga in New York. Frequently attended by well-known personalities including Madonna, Gwyneth Paltrow and Lou Reed. Eddie is wise and his energy is infectious. Spending time with him was truly an honour. Our conversation traverses many realms. The important grounding that comes with daily traditions. The darkness of regret and the freedom in living your truth. If I'm totally connected in myself knowing that I am doing the right things and I'm adhering to the principles I feel in me, then that's freedom for me. It's not an outward thing. And this is very much what yoga has always taught, that freedom is inside of us. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Eddie has authored many books, including One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. He has also created two apps, The Breathing App and Yoga 365. Eddie's story reminds us of the impermanence of everything and the sacredness of each day. My hope is that our conversation allows you to help identify the blocks you've created in your own life and sets you on the path to healing that we all wish to seek. Eddie Stern, you are known as one of yoga's greatest teachers. I'd like to start off by talking a bit about your younger years and what led you to be the teacher that you are today. I've been of the opinion, and my opinion, of course, could be wildly wrong for a long time, that um, we come into the world as the people we are and the events that unfold around us happen because we already are the people that we are when we come into the world. And those events have almost no choice but to happen, especially if we are open and receptive and paying attention. So I don't really believe that because, say, you know, I grew up in New York City in Greenwich Village and I was exposed to psychedelics early in my life and had some spiritual experiences. And then I went to India and then I learned how to teach yoga and then I came back and then opened a yoga school and then people started to come. I, I don't think those were, were um, causal events that I became the teacher I am today because A, B, C, D, E, F, and G happened. I think that A, B, C, D, E, F, and G happened because I already was who I was when I, when I came here or, you know, was born this time around. And I think that's the true for everybody on the planet. And I think that we have, there's certain amounts of our life that are malleable, that we can mold, that we can direct. And we can also, you know, we can also be come into the world as, as who we are but then not pay attention to it. Mm. And by not paying attention to it, then you might end up in a place where you don't want to be. But if you pay attention to that calling inside of you that says, this is who you are, this is what you need to adhere to. Like you can, you can hear that when you're five years old, when you're six years old, seven years old, and many kids do. And if you keep listening to that voice inside of you, then you automatically flow the way that you're, life is designed to flow. But sometimes like 
you know, we're trained to not listen to that. We're trained to fit into the status quo or to live up to the expectations of what our parents or society holds out for us. And we continually ignore that calling inside of our hearts. And then we end up in a place where we don't necessarily want to be. I think that that is what happens to a lot of society. So I simply didn't listen to that. Like whatever society was kind of dictating was the way that I should be doing things. I didn't see meaning or purpose in that. So I didn't agree. I didn't listen. I didn't follow along. And sometimes then you get labeled as a rebellious kid. You know, you get labeled as a troublemaker, someone who's just, you know, not, uh, you know, not easy to deal with or whatever. But for me, I wasn't rebellious. I was listening to the calling in my heart to to do the things to me that, that had meaning. So I think if there's anything I've done in my life, I think it's that I've tried to listen. And the times when I haven't listened is when things go wrong. Mm. But when I do listen, even if things don't go smoothly, I have the strength to deal with it because I know that I'm, I'm paying attention to my true inner voice, my true inner callings, whatever they might be. When you've had those times in your life and when you were younger and you did listen, what does it sound like? What does it feel like for people out there that feel that they, they can't hear? What was your experience with that? I think that when you actually listen to your inner guide, it feels right. Mm. And, and we all know when something feels right. We definitely know when things feel wrong. We definitely know when we're not too sure. But we also know when something is right. When we eat a food which is delicious and we digest well, we know that it's good. When we hear a song that we love and we just want to listen to it again and again and again, like we know that song is good for us, that we like it. See a beautiful painting or, you know, a piece of clothing that we want to wear every day. And so listening to your inner guidance is really no different than that. It's just a little trickier because you don't see it with any of the sense organs that we're usually using to grasp information. We have to use a different inner kind of a listening. That takes a little bit of training. But when we practice that and we spend a little bit of time every day actively listening inwardly, then we can we get better at it. Like we can, an opportunity will present itself and we can feel, you know what, this doesn't feel quite right. I'm just going to trust that feeling and not do it. So there's two things. There's listening and then there's trust. And the trust comes on experimentation, on trying, you know, getting it right, getting it wrong. And I, I still go through that where an opportunity will prevent, present itself or someone will ask me to do something and it sounds like it's a, a really good thing but it doesn't feel quite right. And I just don't do it. Then later on, someone will say to me, oh man, you really dodged a bullet on that one. You know, you're lucky you didn't go do that, this, that, or the other. So that's basically, that's a large part of my practice as a human being is like listening and trusting what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. And, you know, you don't always get it right, but more often than not, you do as you get practiced with it. When you were young and your inner guidance was telling you certain things, when you found the right thing, how did that feel for you? And how did you even come to, to find that? The first real solid guidance that I had about that, it was really formative for me, was in ninth grade, I had an English teacher named Mrs. Jane Benditson. And Actually, it was my 10th grade. I thought it was ninth grade until someone corrected me just a couple of days ago. Someone came to my yoga school who went to the same high school I went to. She was a year ahead of me, and I didn't know her in school other than my sister, who's older than me, was friends with her. And so she came to the yoga school, and I hadn't even realized we had been in the same high school together. And so I said, I had no idea that you went to Riverdale. She said, yeah, yeah, I did. I said, I went there up until 11th grade. I said, Mrs. You know, Benditson changed my life. And she said, oh my God, Jane Benditson. She changed my life also. You know, she's the 10th and 11th English grade classes. And I haven't spoken about her in 40 years. So we were talking about Mrs. Benditson. And I realized now it was 10th and 11th grade, not 9th grade. 
So um, one of the first things that she had us do that year was number one, write an essay on the unexamined life. Mm. Like, what is your life like if you don't examine it deeply and closely? And, and she said to us, the three most important things you can do in your life are ask yourself, who am I? What am I doing here? And what do I do next? And so here I am, 15 years old. I already can't stand the system. You know, I think I'm a burgeoning little punk rocker. I hate school. I just don't do well in that environment. And here's someone saying to me, you know, like, who are you? What are you doing here on this planet? And how are you going to act on that? Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is the best piece of guidance I've ever received. And I just started thinking about it. And I haven't stopped thinking about it since whatever year that was, 1984. And uh, that has been like my guiding principle. And, uh, and I still stick to it. Wow. So like when, and when you go through those questions and ask them, like you don't need solid answers. You just need to ask the questions. And then the answers kind of arise because it's a changing situation. Like in, in one situation, I might be a father. In another situation, I might need to be a husband. In another situation, I might need to be a son. So all those things are malleable. But the thing which is consistent is my response to the question, that I'm paying attention to the question and the situation, and that I'm acting in accordance with what needs to be done at that time. Mm. And then on an ultimate level, the who am I is consciousness, is pure being, is existence, at least according to yoga and Hinduism and Vedanta. So they're wonderful questions. And, and that gave me my first solid guidance into, you know, not living an unexamined life. That's a wonderful story. Eddie, how did you get into yoga? I started doing yoga after I met a guy in a record store that I worked in. He worked there too. It was right after high school. And I was 18 and he had done yoga in the 1970s and I was very unhealthy at the time. I was living on pizza, Big Macs, cappuccinos, Coke, <laughs> and one to two packets of cigarettes a day. What? And yes. And for my evening snack, I would have a pitcher of beer and a lot of tequila. And that was, you know, our day to day. And I knew that I wasn't healthy. So Ted said to me, oh, well, you know, you can try doing some of this yoga. And I said, well, what do I do? And which, you know, I really realize now is this is the, the main thing people need to know and want to know, like, what do I do when I'm doing a spiritual practice? Like, okay, just give me some practical steps, you know, and I'll get started. And so that was really good. And what he said to me to do was become a vegetarian. He said, well, if you really want to, you know, clean yourself up and, and start living a spiritual life, you need to become a vegetarian. And some people had told me before that, that I was a spiritual person and I had no idea what that meant. Like I had never heard the word before. I just didn't even know there wasn't a well-being or a wellness uh, industry mm. at that time in the States, you know, and yoga was still on the fringes of, of hippiedom. I became a vegetarian he taught me one or two meditation techniques, gave me some books on yoga that I started reading that I understood nothing of. And we talked about samadhi and enlightenment and kundalini and, you know, what would we do if we ever woke up our kundalinis, you know, start a band maybe. So, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so that was that. And that's how I got started. And maybe six months after that or so, I actually walked into a yoga class. Uh, Ravi Singh, Kundalini Yoga on 10th Street and 4th Avenue. And later to the Jiva Mukti Yoga Society, which was on Avenue B and 8th Street, a tiny little place in a basement. Then later, Shivananda. I find it interesting that at a young age, people were calling you spiritual and you didn't even really know what that meant. Why do you think people said that to you or found that you embodied that? I have no idea. I really, I really don't. I didn't feel particularly spiritual. I was interested in, I was always interested in finding meaning in things and mm. being creative and being purposeful. But I also liked hanging out in bars and drinking and taking <laughs> drugs and, you know, playing music and going to loud concerts. So 
I didn't identify with something that you would call spiritual. So maybe because I wasn't interested in going to college or getting a job or earning money in the usual ways, but I wanted to make money in my own ways. I had a t-shirt business that I had started. I was printing and designing t-shirts and making a living that way. And so I was more interested in art and music than in getting a degree. You mentioned earlier on that you spent some time in India, and I'm sure you've spent a lot of time in India now. Can you tell us about some of your fond memories from there? Well, yeah, I mean, India has given me my entire life, you know, my entire spiritual life and more. I met my wife in India. All my formal education has been in India. Right now I'm doing a master's in science and I'm doing it with an Indian university online. So, I mean, I guess I've traveled to India maybe 40 times or so in the past since 1988, probably more than that. It's my second home. I feel comfortable there. I love the country. I love the people, the knowledge, philosophy, spirituality, religion. The texts are, I find them to be unparalleled to anything else I've experienced anywhere. So India is my spiritual heart for sure. Yoga is obviously a practice that brings us back to the body and reminds us that all the intelligence we need is inside of us. Can you talk to us about your experience with that? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. There's this idea within yoga, and this is true, of course, in biological sciences as well. Like in biological sciences, we are a cellular body made up of 37.2 trillion cells, approximately. And Uh, each of these cells has all the information that it needs to do anything that any other cell in the body is doing. And somehow the cells gather together and they perform specialized functions. So cells will become skin or a nervous system, part of a nervous system or an organ like a liver or will become part of the immune system or endocrine system or anything. But still a liver cell has all the information embedded in it that it needs to be a heart cell, but it doesn't perform the functions of a heart. It doesn't perform the functions of an ear. It stays and does its liver thing. How it knows to do this is one of the unanswered questions of, you know, self-organizing principles. So our entire cellular body is a field of knowledge, of information, and also of specialization. And it's this entire field which is always fully in communication with with every other cell in the body. And the nervous system is the hub of communication, which is organizing the communication of every cell in our body, all these 37.2 trillion cells with the outer environment that we live in, which is also a huge cellular body of other beings, people and animals, of plants, of water, of of everything, you know, the entire natural environment. So we're constantly in communication with everything. But we filter and limit the communication because if we were in full communion all the time, then we wouldn't be able to function or operate. We would just be in the bliss transcendent Mm. states, which is where the yogis would like to go. So when we look at this idea of communication, communication is a limiting of information. Right now, I'm only listening to you. I'm not listening to the 5,000 conversations that are happening downstairs from, you know, the building I'm in or the traffic going by or anything else. I'm just here communicating with you. And I'm also filtering out like the sights and the smells and everything. So it's a very small bandwidth of information that we're engaging with here or any given moment of the day. In liberated states or enlightenment states or transcendent states, we are expand, we're, we're, we're removing the filter of communication and entering into a state of communion where we become as if one with everything which is existing in that moment and in any moment after that, as long as we're in that communion. So if we think about communication as limiting and communion is expanding, then that's the potential that we have within us uh, as human beings when we begin to 
engage in spiritual practices, whether it's yoga or prayer, meditation, mantra chanting, pilgrimage, service to others, whatever it might be, is it's all aiming at that, at that communion. And then beyond that are the total unity states where even the idea or the sense that you exist in union with something disappears. The meditator is gone and all that exists is just pure being. There's no one to experience it anymore. And that's the full union with your source, so to speak. So I really like these ideas. And there's a particular mantra called the Gayatri Mantra, which is a very famous Hindu mantra. I shouldn't even say famous. It's the most important mantra probably of all of the Vedas, which are the oldest texts in Hinduism. And it basically says, the first part says, earth, sky, and heavens. And then, may my mind merge into that infinite source of light or infinite source of being. May that self-effulgent light illuminate my field of intelligence, which is, it's often translated as mind. The word is D, but D is, is more than your mind. It's it, which we think of as a thinking apparatus. It's actually our entire field mm. where information is being processed. And that's the whole body-mind complex. So when you sit and meditate, you think, may that self-effulgent light of knowledge, of being of everything, may that infuse my field of intelligence. That means every cell in my body, because every cell in my body has mind. Mm. I think... You know, we commonly think in the West that the mind is relegated to the brain. But in the East, the mind is, it's the heart, it's the brain, it's every cell in the body. The mind is everywhere. So you feel this sense of being infused with brightness in every cell in the body, which is the field of intelligence, the field of communication. And then there is that for the few moments you're meditating there, that linkage with yourself and with something which is illuminating the ability to even perceive anything, you know. So that's Gayatri Mantra, and it's very beautiful. And sometimes, you know, and you hear it repeated a lot, but we don't always repeat it thinking about the meaning. Mm. So after you're done repeating it, when you think about the meaning, you have an opportunity to infuse yourself with the self-effulgent light of all knowledge. Uh, made infuse my field of intelligence mm. with brightness, with clarity, with openness. And so it's very, very beautiful. Listening to that mantra, I mean, it, you have, there is no doubt in my mind and from what I've seen that the mind and the body are connected. And so there's so much research into the fact that they are and you hear of, of so many people's experiences. But being the teacher that you are and coming across all the people that you have over your years, I'd love you to talk about disease and how meditation and yoga are a practice that can help with the dysfunction sometimes of the human body. Okay, so about, I don't know the percentage right now, but it's an extremely large percentage of the fatal diseases that we have in the West are the non-communicable diseases, mm. heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and then there are other diseases which are usually not as fatal, but also very high prevalence, such as anxiety, stress, and digestive disorders. So these are the top five, and all of them are related to lifestyle, all of them are related to stress in one way or another, overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system. And the principles of yoga are lifestyle principles. There's activity for the body through yoga asanas. There is calming for the nervous system and the downregulating of the sympathetic overdrive through pranayama. There is diet. Um, whether it's vegetarian or some non-vegetarian, but it's a clean diet, no fast foods, no oily foods or fried foods, no smoking, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, between smoking and poor diet and lack of exercise, if you cut, if you increase your exercise, start breathing better, improve your diet, put away the cigarettes and the alcohol, you've gone huge strides towards your organ systems and your mainframe operating system of the brain to be able to restore the body back to balance. Mm. So a lot of heart disease and some cancers and some diabetes, particularly type 2, anxiety, stress, and many of the digestive disorders are a system out of balance, a system which is in balance, which doesn't have a genetic predisposition that is has to be penetrant that has to express itself, which is only about 5% of diseases. Uh, the rest of it are self-created through lifestyle and through living out of balance. When you shift to living in balance, then your organism begins to shift as well. And the word homeostasis, which I know you're familiar with, is our body's innate ability to restore balance. But homeostasis only works when we're supporting it, which yeah. is the funny thing about it. If we don't support homeostasis, it can't fight back against us. It can when you're younger, but at a certain age, it's going to get tired and, and stop. So we need to get enough sleep. We need to eat at the right times. We need to eat foods that we can digest. We need to exercise and move about. We need to be quiet for a little while during the day, maybe a little meditation. And these are all the major lifestyle things. So those can have a, a, a positive effect on disease prevention from what some of the research says. And also, they're very good interventions if you already are sick. And sometimes mm -hmm. you can reverse heart disease. You can reverse type 2 diabetes. You can reverse your digestive disorders. You can certainly reduce your anxiety and stress by changing your lifestyle and adapting all these new things. Not for everybody, but for some people, meaning the total reversal. But for most people, these practices work to a certain degree keeping numbers within a safe range, you know, yeah. and helping to improve sleep to, to better variables, et cetera. Yes, I totally agree. And I know for myself, because I'm a big meditator, that uh, I can't begin to talk about meditation enough and how it's changed my life. And, and especially if you ever have high levels of stress or anxiety, I mean, it's my absolute go-to thing. And I mean, the states of bliss that you can just find from meditation generally. And when you're, you were talking before about the mantra and I did a Vedic meditation this morning, it was 20 minutes and I did it early because I had to come in to do the interview with you today. And it's just this state of just serene oneness. It's such a beautiful place to be. Yeah, meditation can be the great reset. Mm. And it's like a reset for our mind, for our sense of self, but it's also a, a massive reset for the nervous system Yeah, to have like those 20 minutes to, to downregulate, to recalibrate. Yeah. Eddie, in your book, you talk about the eight tenets of yoga as responsibilities, which is really quite fascinating. Can you talk us through some of them? Certainly. One of the reasons I spoke about them as responsibilities is that you hear on occasion, actually more often than not, than the five yamas and five niyamas translated like they're the Ten Commandments. Like here are the do's and here are the do nots. You know, don't do these and do do these. And one thing that I learned from Dr. Deepak Chopra was that his guru, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, said that the yamas and niyamas, especially the yamas, were the spontaneous behavior of an awakened person or an enlightened person. So that when you were totally in tune with your highest nature or your truest self, that you spontaneously displayed not harming anything. And every word that came from your mouth was true. And that you never thought to steal anything because nothing belonged to you. You could own nothing, you know. And, and that you would be sexually responsible because you wouldn't be objectifying anyone mm. as 
objects of desire or possession and that there would be no greediness within you because you had everything within yourself already. And I think that that's a really beautiful way of looking at the yamas. Um, these are aspirations of the most harmonious and peaceful behavior that a person can display. But for many of us, we're not the perfect display of these behaviors. We have to begin to practice something. And if you think about practicing nonviolence, you know, don't harm anyone in word, thought, or deed. Mm. That's very difficult to do because we're, you know, if we, <laughs> number one, some people can get really technical about it. Well, every time you inhale and exhale, you know, you're, you're killing microorganisms and mm. red blood cells are dying. And, you know, so even the act of living is the act of death. It's the act of causing harm. So like, that's absolutely true. But then the yamas are addressing us on our ability to be deliberate in the way that we think, the way that we interact. They're not addressing biological or natural functions. They're not saying that fire shouldn't burn, that water shouldn't wet. They're not saying that, you know, that the earth should not move in tectonic plates to cause no harm to any of animal life when there's an earthquake. It's, this is the natural functions. We're talking about our capacity as human beings to be able to choose how we want to be in any given situation. And so I looked at first the yama as our responsibility towards intentional behavior with mm -hmm. others and intentional re relationships with the people around us through these tenets, through trying to not harm people with aggressive words, angry words, violent words, trying to be honest, which means to speak to people in a way that they can hear what you're trying to say and not just the words that you're saying. That's quite difficult to do. Mm. Like if someone says, you, you know what I mean? Or do you feel me? You know, well, why are they saying that? They're saying that because words are hard. Not only are words hard, they're hard to find the right one. And it's often hard to hear the right words mm. as well. So that's how I was looking at that. And uh, niyamas are relationships with our spiritual disciplines. And asana, of course, is a relationship with our body. We can do yoga poses and be really aggressive about it and fight our way into poses or, or feel that, oh, you know, I can't do yoga. I can't touch my toes, so I'm not going to go. So what we're doing is we're re-envisioning our relationship with our body through asanas. What kind of facility do we have naturally? And what kind of facility can we develop through practice? You know, what are my potentials of my body? And what are the limitations? How can I care for my body and be in touch with maybe if I twist this way, I'm putting pressure on my liver or my spleen. And I never thought about my liver or spleen before because I just took them for granted. And, you know, now I'm, I'm getting concerned with my intestines, you know, and I can feel them when I do a forward bend or a backward bend and thinking about the blood flow going to those organs. So you start to get this intimate relationship with your body in ways that you don't when you're not thinking about your internal organs that much. So this is basically how I went through all of the eight limbs, you know, pranayama is your relationship with your nervous system. So it's quite intuitive. And the word relation mm. is one of the meanings of yoga as well. Union is one of the definitions. Concentration is another definition and relation is another definition too. What is the relationship we have between ourself and others, ourself and our body, ourself and our breath? ourself and our mind. Now, if we're not forming a positive relationship with our mind, then we are going to have, we're going to be dark-minded people because our mind will become an enemy. Krishna says in the Gita that we should become a friend of our mind, you know, and not an enemy of the mind, a friend of our highest self, not an enemy of the highest self. And then we can attain great levels of peace. So, that's the type of relationship as well. You know, what kind of a relationship do I have with my thinking tendencies? And I can change them too, just like I can change any other relationship that I have. From 
from a harder one to a softer one, from a undisciplined to a disciplined. Um, all of those are relationships. And it all, and what's a relationship? Communication, mm. connectivity. You talk about relationships, and I wonder, from a communication perspective, why it seems so difficult for a lot of people to be themselves and to be honest with who they are and show who they are to other people. And I suppose with the rise of social media and people wanting to be perceived in a certain way, why have we gotten to that point where we can't just trust in being who we are? Because I know for myself, when I found what I was passionate in and and truly embodied what I was learning and, and who I was and showed people the true me, it was the most liberating thing I could have ever have done. So I wonder why it is quite difficult for so many people. I think maybe we live in a culture that does not encourage it. Mm. I mean, well, I can only talk for America, which was a culture founded by the Puritans who came over from England. And so just hearing the word the Puritans, you know, you're going to, who's pure? Nobody. <laughs> so if you're going to have a top-down idea of purity, that's going to cause a lot of repression. And there is a lot of repression, which we see in America, as well as all the violence committed in this country, mm. the killing of the Native Americans and the stealing of their land, and, and then the pretending that it never happened, you know, that this was always our country, America. Mm. So there's a lot of repression in America, whether it's religious repression, political, racial, all across the board. And the roots of that have been here for a long time. And this is a lot of what the hippie movement was about, you know, to break out of the bondage of the lying and of, of the creating a false narrative. You know, a lot of the popular ideas of American history are just completely false narratives mm. that are being undone a little bit now and slowly backtracked on. So, you know, Columbus discovering America, come on, it was here. <laughs> and there were a lot of people living here. <laughs> this was a populated land with millions of Native Americans and millions of buffalo. Now they're almost all gone. So how did that happen? You know, that story is has been put in the back shelves, a story of glory mm. and freedom has replaced it. And the idea of freedom, and I, again, I've said this before, and other people have said this too, the idea of freedom in America is not a true freedom. It's a hedonism. It's the idea that I can do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, and no one can tell me otherwise. And this is, you know, largely the mentality of the country mm. for many people, whether Democrat or Republican, whether white supremacist or leftist liberal, you know, there's this idea of freedom, which is tinged with don't tell me what to do, you know, and, and what you're doing is wrong and what I'm doing is right. This is a form of indulgence and it's a form of hedonism. And that's not true freedom. It is indulgence in your own likes and dislikes. And the harder you hold on to something you like, the more the thing you think you dislike, you, you know, your aversion to that will grow. Mm. And then the two will grow further and further and further and further apart until they're at opposite ends of the spectrum. And that's where we are politically now in America, for sure, ideologically. We're a country which is more divided than ever because... There's a fixed holding on to viewpoints and a lack of ability to dialogue, um, to problem solve together. It's tough. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be critical of an entire nation and an entire, you know, political systems because I also have a hard time dialoguing with people sometimes too. Mm. So, but what can we do? Like there needs to be also education on problem solving, on crisis management, on communicating, on nonviolent communication, 
on all of these types of things. Like these, these could be learned and they could be built into larger systems. You start it off on a smaller scale, of course, and then try to implement little as you grow. But we have to make a change because mm. otherwise things will just continue to get worse. Like we haven't really seen a lot of things getting better, even as technology advances, even as wealth advances. A lot of the basic things are still not fixed at all. So, so things need to, you know, we, we actively need to participate in that. And so if a follow-up question is, well, how do we do this? Then my answer to that is, well, we participate and we say, okay, I'm willing to take part in challenging conversations. I'm willing to go into environments that are not favorable to me and environments which typically have bad outcomes and then see how we can help make them better or give people in those environments the tools to make them better themselves. You know, violence in the inner cities, for example, there are groups I work with in New York who are doing tremendous work to reduce gun violence through the training of the people who are coming out from prisons to become credible messengers to say, hey, you really don't want to end up in jail for 25 years, your life will be gone. And, and all the other things that need to be done in an intervention. And that type of work takes dedication, a lot of energy, a lot of willingness to face failure and to face pushback because the, you know, it's a little against the status quo, mm. but if you're committed to it, then you do it anyway. And you don't expect it to always work. What's true freedom to you, Eddie? True freedom to me is when I am completely aligned with myself. And it doesn't matter what's happening around me. If I'm being criticized, if I'm being praised, if I'm being challenged, if I'm making money, if I'm not making money, any of those things, like if I'm totally connected in myself, knowing that I am doing the right things and I'm adhering to the principles I feel in me, then that's freedom for me. It's not, it's not an outward thing. And this is very much what yoga has always taught, mm. that freedom is inside of us. And my first Sanskrit teacher, Vyas Houston, translated Yoga Sutras and gave it the title, The Certainty of Freedom. That was the subtitle that he gave to it. He said that if you follow these teachings and you think about them and you read them, they become a roadmap for your inner consciousness, for your inner states of consciousness, and you can follow them. And the certainty of it is that if you follow it, then you will find inner freedom through traveling along with your, your inner shifts in consciousness mm. till you get to that point where there's an unchanging consciousness. So the certainty of freedom, it's a very interesting way that the, the whole Indic civilization had of looking at spirituality. That yeah, if freedom was contained within us, but you had to listen really closely and live accordingly as well. I think it comes back to that whole notion of everything that we need is already inside of us. It's just about finding it again, and but it's there. We just need to connect with it. Yeah, and the tools. And that's what, that's what yoga and meditation and all of these aligned disciplines are really important mm. for us, for, for giving us tools so we can learn to listen, so we can learn to connect. You touched on the breath before, our life force, the thing we come into the world with and the thing that leaves us, our final, our final note in this state of consciousness. Can you talk to us about your experience with the breath through yoga and meditation? There are a few different schools of breathing in yoga. One is a dynamic form 
the popular pranayamas that we see in yoga classes like Kapalabhati and alternate nostril breathing with breath retentions and things like that. And then there's the slower, quieter forms that you find in the Patanjali Yoga Sutras and earlier texts where the idea in pranayama is to really slow your breathing. And you can slow it to the point where sometimes it will pause for long periods and you find that you're not breathing. And that this is where pranayama moves towards. That you go to a point, it's not about holding the breath, deep breath. It's not even about breathing. It's about suspension of breath. And in those moments where the breath is suspended, that your mind is suspended at the same time. So this is the type of pranayama I'm primarily interested in. Doing practices that lead you to the suspension of breath. It's a very strange thing because we're used to breathing all the time. And we're used to thinking, and our body is used to thinking as well, like if I stop breathing, that's a problem. And so you can be in this state where you're not breathing, and all of a sudden a part of you will go, hey, shouldn't I be breathing now? But your body is saying, no, you know, you don't really need to be breathing quite yet. And so when you start to go through that and just sit quietly and like not give into it without any forcing you have very subtle identity shifts. Like, okay, who am I if I'm not my breath? And that's an interesting question because our breath is that thing that we don't think about, which is happening all day long that actually keeps us alive, which means we can be who we are. So the idea of, well, who will I be if I don't have my job? You know, well, I have to become someone else, even though I've been something my whole career. If I had to stop teaching yoga, then who would I be? What would I do? I'd probably start a t-shirt company again. You know, who, who would you be? Well, I'm still printing t-shirts, actually. Who would you be um, without your job, without your name, without your wardrobe, without your physical capability? You know, there are all these things that are very topical. But who would you be without your breath? The obvious answer is, well, you'd be dead without your breath. But in pranayama, all of a sudden, I'm not dead, but I'm not breathing. So who am I? You know, and what's sustaining me in that moment? And that's, and that's very interesting. So, you know, things come into your mind, you get ideas about your inner being and your inner nature of consciousness and, and ideas about prana, which is a bioelectric energy that it actually can sustain you in your body for some periods of time without you needing to breathe in or breathe out. You read in the texts about breath retentions like this, where the breath suspends and the yogis can do it for several hours at a time. Well, I've never met anyone who can do that, but there probably are people who can. And, you know, why not? So they must be in a very mm. interesting state. You spoke before about Deepak having a guru in India and learning from that guru. And I, I've heard you briefly talk about your own experiences. Did you have one guru or were there several gurus that you learned from? I've had several teachers that I've learned different disciplines from. I was learning yoga, particularly asanas, from one teacher in South India for many years. In the end, that ended up being a very painful experience because he was sexually abusing women. Oh. And so it was, uh, of course, devastating and abusive for the women. And it was destructive for the community. And it was something that in that time I did not deal with or address well. I felt that I had, looking back on it, a profound lack of character in being compassionate towards the women who were abused in that situation. Because I was trying to protect the system and protect the teacher, and it took me a while to really admit what he had done and the harm that it caused and, and how I wished I could have been a better person when all this was coming out. And earlier on, before all the stories coming out, I also knew that he wasn't 
a good person. I knew that, you know, I knew that he was touching women. I didn't know all the ways that he was doing it, but I knew some things. And, and, and the things that I knew should have been enough for me to say, hey, this is not right, you know, and leave. But I didn't because I had a position in the hierarchy of things that I was striving for. So that is, you know, a, a part of me and a part of my experience and a part of what it was like to have had him as a teacher. I have had to remove him from my system, you know. And so, uh, and I've addressed these things in conversations before and I'll never avoid it in the future when it comes up. I was trying to have uh, a storybook idea of what it was to have a guru based on my Western preconceptions of what that relationship was. And I know that I was doing that. And, and that was um, a mistake. So, you know, and, and, and this is, you know, when we talk about freedom and talk about listening, I know there were red flags about him that I didn't listen to. And there were red flags about myself that I didn't listen to. So that was a period of my life where I actively didn't listen which is why listening is so important to me now, even more than it was before. Mm. Because I actively ignored some things that I should not have ignored. And, um, and I'm talking about myself and in my decision making. So that was that. I, you know, I, I had been going to India before I met him and I'd been learning yoga before I met him. And I know that I'm doing yoga in India after I met him. So he was a, a part of my life and a, and a formative part because I learned a lot. But I continue to study and I continue to grow and expand and, you know, and ask for forgiveness for anything I've done to be hurtful to people who needed compassion in that moment. And, you know, because there, you know, he wasn't running a cult. It wasn't sophisticated enough for that. But there was a very cult-like mentality that was growing around that community of which I was a part. And I was also, I was supporting that narrative through like, you know, translating his book and writing a biography about him and which I co co-edited actually. And so I was part of supporting this narrative about him as a, as a big guru figure. Now as a yoga teacher and simply as a trainer, as a physical trainer, he impacted a lot of people's lives. But as a spiritual leader, that was absent, I think, for the most part, because of all the harm that was caused. So there are different levels of teachers in Hinduism. A guru will display the highest character and behavior at all times. And this is not from me. This is from, you know, the people in India who have gone to seeking advice to say, hey, like, how do I how do I understand and, and make sense of these 19 years I spent devoting my life yeah. to someone who, who did some very harmful things? And one of my Sanskrit teachers said, you know, the, this guru is going to be the highest display of behavior. And then you have acharyas who guide people, also display a very high level of behavior, but they instruct and they guide. And, and, yeah. The idea behind an acharya is a display of behaviors that you can also guide others into. And then there's a shikshika who is a trainer that they have a skill that they train you in. And they will be very skilled in training you in that one thing or maybe two things, but they might not be displaying the behavior of an acharya or of a guru. So I feel that maybe that's the situation that I was in and I was trying to you know, turn someone into something that they weren't. Mm. I wasn't the only one, you know, there were a lot of us who were doing that, but we did it. And I think we have to cop up to that, you know, we have to say, yeah, we, you know, we, we were part of that. Now, the form of yoga that I was learning still exists and it is for the most part, a sound practice. It is basically good for you. And a lot of people enjoy doing it. 
So that yoga practice is still very much alive in the world. And I think that it should be. I think it should transcend the negative forces that carried it for some time. There are also a lot of positive forces that are carrying it too. I continue to teach that form of yoga, but I also teach other forms based on my own experimentation primarily. I'm also going to school right now at the Vivekananda Yoga University, and I'm getting a master's in science and yoga research. And uh, there's a yoga therapy and an ancient yoga text portion of those studies that I'm doing. So I'm incorporating a lot of that into my life, some of it into how I teach, but a lot of it just into my life and my ongoing yoga growth, which like any person, as long as you study yoga, you continually feel like you know absolutely nothing. And that is a wonderful way to keep your thirst uh, active, you know, for, for always engaging, always learning. After that experience and being tied into that, how do you feel that you have grown? I was much more defensive and aggressive when I was in that environment because I knew that it was wrong and, and there were survival issues I had that was making me you know, hold on fast to it. Now I feel a, a bit of a relief that I'm releasing that part of my life from me. And so I'm, I'm not so defensive because I don't have anybody else to try to defend. You only have to defend someone when they're, you know, usually when they're wrong. So I'm not in that position, which also means I'm not on the offensive if anyone is attacking me or the community I'm part of. So a lot of that has, has softened quite a lot or gone away. And also I'm able to talk about these things freely and openly, which I wasn't able to do for a few years because of fear. And so now there's still a little bit of, of fear and hesitancy to talk about these things, but I do anyway. But before I couldn't talk about them at all, you know, either I was in a fear state where I was in a, my nervous system would lock down or any of those things would happen. And so now that's not there. So I feel that I'm in uh, a growth phase right now that I'm enjoying. Um, and um, so that's where I'm at. I appreciate your openness and, and vulnerability. And I'm, I'm sure it will help so many people who may have come along similar things in their lifetime. And honestly, when I asked you the question, I thought you were going to tell me about some guru that you loved and you learned so much from. So I had no idea that you were going to say what you did, but I appreciate you being open and it's very generous of you to share that information with our community. And I, and I, do, I do have, you know, a whole bunch of teachers who I really love <laughs> yes. and cherish who have done absolutely nothing wrong and, ex, ex, you know, display exemplary character. There are many of those as well. All, all of my teachers, all of my yoga teachers, uh, with the exception really of one or two are Indian and my Sanskrit and philosophy teachers are all Indian and that's where my heart is. Eddie, can you tell us what is your favorite prayer or mantra? Oh, well, there's some different Upanishads that I really like, particularly the Taittiriya Upanishad, which is a fairly long text, but it has some beautiful prayers in it about, you know, may, may my tongue be exceedingly sweet and my ears be filled with goodness and may my body be skillful. There are a lot of mantras in Taittiriya Upanishad that are, are really instructional and also calling out to the divine with all these beautiful, praiseworthy qualities. And then I, you know, you do Vedic meditation. I do TM meditation. They're essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. under. So I do feel that the mantra that I was initiated with sort of sunk into my heart very quickly after I learned it. So, but I only repeat that when I sit and meditate. Mm -hmm. It's not like during other times. But I, you know, chanting is a big part of my practice. There are different things I chant each day. Uh, I could tell you my favorite David Bowie song a lot easier than oh, my yes. favorite one. What's your? I love David Bowie. What's your favorite David Bowie song? <laughs> <laughs> my favorite David Bowie song is "Sweet Thing." Oh, Candidate beautiful! Off of Diamond Dogs. I say, if I was stuck on a desert island with one David Bowie song, it would be that. I mean, I know it's a three-part song, but it's you know seven and a half minutes. Eddie, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? 
Uh, well, I'm just going to go back to Jane Bendison and always asking, yes. who am I? What am I doing here? What do I do next? Or there's also Groucho Marx. You know Groucho mm. Marx from Marx Brothers? Yes. He said, take my advice. I'm not using it. <laughs> What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? The lesson that's taken me the longest to learn, I think probably this whole situation with my teacher in India and um, the, the stubbornness and the arrogance I had into holding on to a constructed viewpoint because I didn't want to face the reality. Mm. The, the lesson is to listen and be honest. And if things are hard, it's okay. It's probably harder for someone else um, who needs you to be there at that time. Mm. What's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? Well, my first blissful feeling of nothingness was the first time I actually did a yoga class when I was 15 or 14 or so. It was at a summer camp. And when we would do Shavasana at the end, I mm. would go into the void and um, come out of it, like not knowing where I had been because it wasn't sleep. And so that was my first experience of touching nothingness. I wouldn't call it blissful. It was just devoid of experience. And that was very, something I wanted to repeat. Do you reach those states of nothingness most times that you go into meditation or shavasana now? I reach deep states of calm where everything becomes placid, just like, you know, like the, the proverbial lake without a ripple on it. I usually... Now it's probably never going to happen to me again because I'm talking about it. You're not supposed to talk about your meditative experiences, uh, but it usually happens in the last couple of minutes of meditating. You know, yes. not in not the beginning, but like right when I'm getting towards my 20-minute mark, all of a sudden, you know, I'll sink in, you know. But I, I'm not looking for bliss. You know, I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for mystical states. I'm not looking for ecstasy. You know, and if it comes, that's great. You know, for sure it's enjoyable, but that can be dangerous too because then you might just want to repeat that mm. experience. And this is the danger of, of any experience. If it's a really good one, you're going to want to chasing. repeat it. Yeah. And if you don't repeat it, then you might go chasing after it, which means you're not in the present anymore. And so, I mean, I've had dreams before where I was in the presence of holy people and certain things transacted. And I feel that those things were all blessings. It became part of my new cellular body that was developing. And then, but you can't hold on to those things. They were something happened. It should affect a change and then keep going. Don't look, you know, and these are in experience are, are they're changing states, you know, it's a state and what we're looking for from my understanding, and Rick Hansen, Dr. Rick Hansen talks about this a lot, is enduring states, enduring traits of, of mind, that you're building a new character trait as your underlying hum of your being. And that on the top of that, there are all these changing states that we go through. And uh, we can get lost in the changing states, especially if they're really, you know, super great ones. But it's this enduring character trait of mind, of of peace, of calm, of connection, of, uh, again, listening, of service, of being present. And that's who we become. So all of this stuff is a process of becoming whatever our highest capacities are to become. And then to remain there steady, mm. you know, to not go high and then come down, but to be steady in that. And and incrementally, you might go to a place where you're like always blissful. If that's the goal, though, then sometimes it can be troubling because, you know, again, you'll be reaching for an idea. And when you get there, it might be very different than what mm. your idea was. So it's better to be surprised yes. by whatever unfolds rather than go for the thing that you think you want. Eddie, what's your greatest hope for society today? 
that people stop fighting with each other, that the wars all over the world end, that we start feeding the hungry people, that we stop hoarding resources, that we start prioritizing education for kids and food for kids who are hungry rather than bloated military budgets. Those are some of my hopes for society, and especially right now, the war in Ukraine. And also, you know, maybe finding some better sustainable ways of making our clothing and making our technology and all that stuff. Uh, I have all the idealist dreams is very much in me still. I haven't lost my youthful ideals. <laughs> We've got to check out your T-shirts. What is a life of greatness to you? I would like to be a good husband. I'd like to be a good father. I'd like to be a good child to my parents. That's probably the one that needs more work than the others. I don't call them as much as I should. Uh, I'd like to be good to my students, absolutely. And I'd like to be continually dedicated to the temple that we're building here and to the energy that we're creating and developing. I'd like to be a good friend as well. And I would like to be disciplined in adhering to and doing the things that I feel are important to me and not letting them slide away, mm. making time for those things. So that would be pretty good. And if I could do those things at, a, at like even a mediocre level for all of them, that'd be pretty great. Eddie Stern, I could honestly talk to you all day. You are full of wisdom and I... So appreciated the conversation today. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's really been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.